Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Becoming Unassailable podcast. This podcast is all about helping your executive or leadership team embrace forward change together so that your organization can thrive in the midst of change and disruption. My name is Mark Kenny, speaker, author, strategic team advisor, and each episode will tackle a challenge that is keeping your executive or leadership team from moving forward together. In this episode, we're talking about how do you get actual commitment to change. And my guest today is Gary Garfield. Gary is a leader who has been there, done that. Gary is the former CEO, president, and chairman of Bridgestone Americas, which is the successor to the iconic Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. As the CEO, Gary led the transformation of Bridgestone Americas, driving it to grow profits more than five-fold during his six-year tenure. We're going to find out today how he did that and specifically how he got commitment from his leadership team and the entire organization to change. So before we get to the conversation, please take a moment to subscribe to this podcast so you're notified of future episodes. And let's get to the conversation with Gary. Gary, thank you for joining me on this episode. It is so great to have you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you so much for having me. I You're really welcome. Appreciate- You're welcome. Well, I invited you because we were having coffee and, and we had this conversation around commitment on a team. And I know that one of the challenges on an executive or leadership team, especially, is how you get commitment from each and every team member instead of people moving in different directions. So I want to talk about that and, and get your perspective on that. But I'd like, first of all, just get, let's set this up a little bit. Uh, or put a little context to it. What was your experience? Because you you were placed into a role, you were asked to make some significant changes. Could you give us a couple sentences to set some context as far as your experience with this and getting people aligned and committed? Absolutely. So in 2010, I became the CEO of Bridgestone Americas. Bridgestone Americas is the largest subsidiary of Bridgestone Corporation, which is headquartered in Japan. Bridgestone Americas is responsible for the operations in North, South, and Central America. We're about a $10 billion company, 55,000 people. And even though our responsibilities were for the Western Hemisphere, we had non-tire operations all over the world. So we had people operating on five continents. It's a pretty big organization. Yes. Uh, So... The shareholder and the ultimate shareholders all over the world were not, they wanted greater results, stronger results coming out of Bridgestone Americas. And my responsibility was to make it happen. And my boss, the global CEO said, I'm not going to tell you how to do it. That's your job. Your job is to make it happen. So in that context, Uh, It was very clear to me that we couldn't just do what we had been doing year in and year out. That wasn't going to get different, if you will, better, stronger results. So we had to make changes and we made a lot of changes. So you had to make a lot of changes. And and by the way, um, your book is is great, Driving Results. There's six leadership lessons in there. I encourage people to, to read it. You weren't just asked to deliver results, but 
substantially better results as what right. you say in your book. So you've got to come in and you, we need to do things differently. So, so now let me ask the question, how do you get commitment from, let's start with all those members on your executive team who are used to doing things a certain way and you've got to get them committed to doing things differently. Right. There, there are, there were a lot of things we did. First, we created an executive committee and we really got the senior leadership team involved in the direction of the company. And that was very important. Um, prior to that, we didn't have an executive committee. All decisions were major decisions were made by the CEO as the CEO rather than the executive committee. And on the executive committee, um, we worked very hard on that committee's culture and decisions. I, I basically had veto power, uh, if you will, but um, we really tried to get the committee to make decisions as a team. And it was rare, if ever, that I used my veto power, if you will. Um, so that was one thing. And may I ask you a question about that? Absolutely. So what I'm hearing you saying is you formed a small team that was providing input, um, suggestions, wrestling with what we needed to do and making a decision on what we needed to do. Is that, is that right? That's correct. That's right. That's exactly right. And can uh, I ask and, you yeah. why that isn't, why you thought that was important as opposed to just the leader dictating what was going to happen or deciding what was going to happen? Yeah, there, there, there are several reasons. One, um, I've yet to meet anyone who has all the answers. Uh, and um, if, if the CEO thinks they have all the answers, they're probably wrong and probably, respectfully, not a very good CEO. So uh, people who are the head of sales, the head of marketing, um, the head of this division, the head of that division, they have a lot of great ideas and thoughts about the direction of the company, uh, operations within the company, and getting their input is hugely valuable. That's number one. Uh, number two, the more they're engaged, the more they're going to buy into where we ultimately go. Um, so that's number two. Number three, one of the rules that we created as the executive committee, and we did this with the help of an outside facilitator, was um, we would have, uh, you had to be engaged, you had to be present at the meetings. That means not looking at your computer, not looking at your iPhone, um, and uh, you had to contribute, and you had to wear your enterprise hat, as we called it. So the head of um, the truck tire part of our business couldn't wear his business hat for his division. He had to wear the enterprise hat. Doesn't mean he couldn't contribute by saying this would be bad for this part of the business or that part of the business, but he had to wear his enterprise hat. And then they had to leave, um, leave the meeting carrying forward what the what the committee ultimately decided, um, but 
it gets engagement. So that's one of the things we did. Got uh, it. That makes total sense. And I love how you said that because I see that that's such a mindset shift that makes a big difference. I'm not the head of such and such a department. I'm part of this team, part of the enterprise, and we're figuring out together. Love exactly. So what's a, what's another thing you, you did? Well, another thing we did, and this, this was in a way bigger um, and, and more profound for the entire organization, was we had to change the culture. Uh, I strongly believe, um, as, as uh, Peter Drucker said, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture's huge. And we had to create a more engaged culture where people um, were actually speaking up and putting forward their ideas, um, breaking down silos and things like that, communicating better, com communicating more, more constructively. So the question that we grappled with at the, in the executive committee was what was what we called um, the cultural change lever we would use to drive change throughout the organization. And we debated this uh, for a couple of meetings. And what we ultimately concluded was it would be innovation. Innovation was gonna be the cultural change lever. And I believe, I believe very strongly when you're trying to change the culture, you need call it what you will, but we called it a cultural change lever. And really, go ahead. And if I may, I think what you're saying is something that everyone can rally around or get their heads around, like we're all focused, something that everyone in the company and on the executive committee on down can focus on, in this case, innovation. That's right. And we're exactly. trying to prove that we're trying to that that we're using that as a tool or a lever, like you said, to actually change the culture. That's exactly right. So once the executive committee decided it would be innovation, we uh, set up an offsite meeting for the top 150 people in the company. Big meeting, offsite meeting, two day meeting. And I opened the meeting by explaining we have a problem. And the problem is there are a lot of inexpensive tires coming from Asia, largely from China, but elsewhere, but mostly from Asia. And they were bringing down the price of tires in the marketplace. And Bridgestone in our markets generally could not command at the time the premium price for tires in our markets. One of our competitors did. And that was largely because we were not regarded as the most innovative tire company out there. We make really good tires, don't misunderstand. I believe we make, uh, made and still make the best tires in the world. But what I believe doesn't matter, what consumers believe is what matters. Mm. And we had to get that premier position and to do that, we decided we had to focus on innovation. Um, so I laid it out for these top 150 people. We've got a choice. We could compete on the basis of cost, or we could compete on the basis of innovation. And if we were to choose to compete on the basis of cost, 
two things would happen. One, no one in the room would like it. We'd have to totally restructure how we do business. We'd have to make cuts left and right um, because, again, we'd be competing on the basis of cost, trying to do what the Chinese do, but better. Mm -hmm. And the second thing is we probably wouldn't succeed. It just wasn't. We care about safety. We care about the environment. We care about doing things right and meticulous in how we manufacture our tires so that they're safe and everything else. So we probably wouldn't succeed. The other option was to compete on the basis of innovation. And I answered everybody's questions about our options. When I got done, I called up an outside expert on innovation. He had written books on it, taught at the Harvard Business School, one of the most sought after consultants in the world. And for six hours, he explained how innovation really occurs, answered everybody's questions. And when he got done, I got back up and I said, I just have one question. Do you think our culture will allow us to do what this gentleman just described? And everyone in the room said no. So I said, I agree. Tomorrow you will come back, we'll break you up into teams of 10. And with the help of facilitators, you will decide what our cultural blueprint needs to be to be the most innovative company in our, our industries. And that is exactly what they did. And they came up with the cultural blueprint. They called it the rules of the road. And it was beautiful. It was just a wonderful, wonderful, simple, straightforward document. And I got up and told them how much I appreciated their hard work, how wonderful it was, what a great job they did. And I said, you now have the right to call me out if I ever deviate from the rules of the road. Things like inclusiveness and collaboration, stuff like that were in there. Um, and But conversely, these are your rules of the road. I have the right to call you out if you ever deviate from them. And that was a big part, not the only part of getting commitment. It was their document, not mine. That is really interesting. That's a very practical way to practical way to do that. So, so I'm the, the question going through my mind is when I'm imagining that there's some people that maybe said they were committed, but ended up not being committed or, or acted in a way that didn't follow the rules of the road. How do you deal with a situation like that? After that, how do you deal with someone that's just not clearly isn't committed or doesn't seem to be committed to the direction that you've set because you just asked for commitment from 150 plus plus people. Right. Um, so we absolutely experienced that. And uh, um, we offered coaches at the company's expense, outside independent coaches um, to help them make that change. Uh, I or whoever their direct manager was would have a conversation and maybe a series of conversations with them. Um, and you know, we would say, I would say, 
this can't go on. It's got to change. Um, and as I said, I'd offer a coach or whatever it may be. And if that didn't work, then you got to make a move. And uh, sometimes we had to make a move, even though the people were great contributors to the organization. Substantively, they were at the top of their game and very, very valued. But if culturally they didn't also contribute, they didn't buy in, they couldn't do it or they wouldn't do it, we had to make a change. Because it's that important. It was that important to you, that important to the effort that they are 100% bought in. Absolutely. If, uh, if they won't buy in and if I won't enforce it, if you will, then people know that what we're trying to do isn't real. It's just a passing fad. Mm-hmm. Right, because they're probably watching. Not probably, they're watching no, this. They are is watching. This real? Is Absolutely. this going to be backed up? Because they probably know it. Maybe even before you did. Like this person really isn't committed to to this. Absolutely, what is he going to do? Absolutely. Interesting. Um, what about um, Did you experience a situation where, where people offered their suggestion, they, they contributed, but their ideas weren't used or weren't used the way they thought they should be? And maybe there was some negativity that came from that? Is that something you experienced? And if so, how, how would you suggest dealing with something with that sort of situation? Yeah, um, sure. Not everyone's suggestions were followed all the time, including my own. I, th <laughs> I wanted to have the freedom to throw out ideas. And um, uh, I wanted people to have the freedom to say, Gary, that's not a very good idea. <laughs> it will create problems. <laughs> um, that was very important to me. Um, but yeah, so if you can successfully create that atmosphere uh, and if the idea is discussed on the merits and relatively unbiasedly, as unbiased as you can, um, usually people, usually people will be, be persuaded, you're right, that won't work. Um, tried it, you know, we talked about it probably not the best way to go. Usually that's how it plays out. And sometimes uh, it isn't. Um, sometimes people don't always see that it isn't the best way, way to go. Or sometimes it's just a very hard, complicated issue. And there is no clear right answer. And you make your decision and move on. But one of, one of, the elements of the rules of the road and the cultural um, uh, uh, points that we established for the executive committee was we would speak with one voice. And that's just how it was. Um, we debate issues, a decision would be made, but we then move forward and speak with one voice. 
So what I'm hearing you say is number one, you're setting the environment or this stage before a decision is even made, before a suggestion is put forth, like we're having the debate around, around this issue, around this decision, what these pillars should be. And we all want to get it right. Like, but we, but we need to challenge each other. We need to have this vibrant debate before we can even ask for a commitment, all trying to get to the right answer. And then it's going to be almost become obvious or more likely or easier to commit to that because we've had that debate. We've set the stage ahead of time, which is very different than, I don't know, asking for a suggestion or or a suggestion box or, or something like that. Like we're all part of this conversation to really dive into what is the best solution. That's right. That's exactly right. And the other thing you said is setting the stage ahead of time. Whatever we decide, we need to come out of here with one voice. Absolutely. So if I could ask a practical question about the one voice, at the end of a meeting, let's say an executive committee meeting, how do you decide what that one voice is and how you're going to communicate that to everyone else that shows commitment? Right. Um well, the one voice, what that one voice is, would be the de ultimate decision, hopefully, of the committee as a whole. Um, and uh, uh, if I had to use my veto power, if you will, we would do that. But that, that was pretty rare. Um, and, and if I, I may, need... I ask that because sometimes a decision is made, but people in the room have different perceptions of what the decision actually was, if that makes sense. Well, you review what the decision is. That's, uh, that's just good management. Okay, yeah. the issue is this, here's how we're gonna move forward. Anyone have any more questions about it, concerns? So you review it and we decide how we're gonna roll it out into the organization at that time. Or we may say, okay, this is our decision and um, I, might ask the head of public relations or whatever it is uh, to say, come up with a communication plan. Mm -hmm. And we'll, depending upon the nature of the issue, how complex it is, how big it is, I may just move forward with it. You know, we'll let everybody know, or we'll have another meeting to discuss it. Love it. I, that's great. And I, I really like that, Gary, because what you just laid out there it's really simple and it's common sense, but sometimes we have to remind, be reminded of the common sense because not everybody actually does that. Yes. Uh, and this is a simple way to speak with one voice. That's right. I just got a flash that my iPad has 5% power. Well, um, we're, we're okay. almost done. Thanks for okay. <laughs> I can plug it in if you'll give me a minute. Okay, hopefully that'll do it. <laughs> That's great. Okay. Sorry about that. All right. We are back. Gary's iPad is now plugged <laughs> back in. <laughs> Apologies. So Gary, I have, I have two more questions as we, as we wrap this up. One is, and this is admittedly a difficult question, but I just want your perspective on this. There's, I know there's some people listening to this and they're like, I'm on this team. Let's say I'm on this leadership team, executive team. I'm a team member. I'm not the leader. And it just feels like we're all going in different directions. We're not committed to the same thing. 
what advice would you give to someone in that position? Yeah, it's a really hard issue. Um, And uh, that came up during my tenure. Um, But, and I'll talk about that in a minute. But the first thing I would say is, it depends a little bit on the culture of the organization, the nature of the situation and uh, how the skids get greased, Mm -hmm. if you will in that particular company. Having some Uh, discernment around that. Yeah. So one option, if it's just one or two people um, that are not really buying in, boy, if, if, if it would work to have a conversation or two with that person or those two people, what's the issue here? What's the concern? I feel like you're going a different, and really just as a friend, and as a colleague, try and talk that through. Good chance, I think that's constructive, but there's a good chance it won't work. And if it's done right, it may help, but maybe it won't. Um, Another option is if the team meets as a whole, um, if, if it works in that culture, and hopefully it does to say, I just get the sense we are not all on the same page. And uh, it may not work to point a finger and it may not be constructive to point a finger at Bob or Sue or whoever it is, but uh, I think we need to do some work together to get us all on the same page. And the leader of the team should really pick up on that. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. The third option is to go talk to the leader of the team. Mm-hmm. and say, we have a problem here. And that happened during my tenure. Um, and we ultimately had to remove someone as we looked into it because they weren't buying in. They pretended, if you will, like they were in meetings I was in. They said all the right things. They acted the right way. But outside the meeting was a very different situation. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And all three of those, the the underlying current I'm hearing is embracing the uncomfortable, if you will, like taking some initiative because it's important for a team. I'm guessing with humility to have the conversation instead of just holding back and just being frustrated and at least doing something, one of those three to have the conversation if it warrants it, if, if, if I have the discernment that somebody may be open to that, That's, that was long-winded, but is that, am I right there? No, you're exactly right. Spot on. So I have one other question for you. Mm-hmm. And that is something you said earlier, you said leaders don't have all the answers. <laughs> Sometimes there's, there seems to be this pull when we get into a leadership position that I'm supposed to have all the answers or that I'm supposed to be, there's a reason I'm in this position. I need to make a decision. Could you speak to that just a little bit? Like, how do I, I don't know if you experienced that, but how do I overcome that or recognize that that's a problem? I don't have all the answers. And the last thing I wanna do is act like I have all the answers because I want to pull people in because that's how I'm gonna get commitment as you've 
talked about already. Right, right. Um, I, I think it really starts with a person's mentality, if you will. If um, a person operates with humility, and I view humility as the absence of arrogance, um, they recognize good ideas can come from anywhere, number one. And number two, there uh, are going to be inevitable, inevitably some hard and also some complex issues and some that are both hard and complex. And getting the input of others can only create better ideas, better solutions. If a person doesn't have that mentality, then probably they're pretty arrogant and not going to be a great leader to begin with. They may be for a while, but sooner or later, their arrogance will get them, in my experience. And I think you're an example, Gary. It, it's ironic in a way, like I want to be a respected leader that gets the right answers and moves us. But by having the humility that I don't have all the answers is perhaps I could say is how I actually achieve that is by. Exactly right. That's well, well put. Well, I, I appreciate the conversation. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you for your time, Gary, and, and sharing with, with me and the folks listening to this. Give us a sentence or two on what you're doing now. And if somebody wanted to get a hold of you, how they could do that. Sure. Um, so I'm doing some speaking, uh, keynote speaking, consulting, coaching, uh, and writing. Uh, as you mentioned at the beginning, I wrote a book, Driving Results, Six Lessons Learned from Transforming an Iconic Company. Uh, the iconic part was Bridgestone acquired the iconic Firestone Tire and Rubber Company, and we were the successor to that. Um, but uh, uh, Again, I do some speaking, consulting, coaching, and the best way um, to reach out to me is go to my website, uh, garyagarfield.com, um, or uh, and, and you can contact me through my website, or um, my email address is G-A-G-A-R-F, uh, as in Garfield, F-111. Uh, at gmail.com. Great. I'll put that in the show notes as well. And Gary, I just have to say, have a little fun, Gary. I love the fact that a former CEO of a big company has a Gmail address to reach out to them. <laughs> that just makes you so relatable. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you for, thank you for joining me, Gary. I love the conversation and have a great day. You too. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. You're welcome.